This morning's passage comes from Luke chapter 11, the Gospel of Luke, in the 11th chapter, verses 1 through 13. If you would follow along as I read aloud, Luke chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when He finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught His disciples. He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you has a friend? Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight? And say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut. And my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impotence, He will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we come before you, we thank you for these words of Jesus teaching us to pray. And we confess, Lord God, that we are weak in our life of prayer, that we often fail and find it hard to pray. And so we ask that your Spirit would work through these your words to show us how to pray to give us a heart for prayer, to lead us closer to Your throne, to cast our hopes and burdens upon You, and that You, Lord God, would hear us as we pray because of Your Son, Christ Jesus. We ask all this in Your name. Amen. Well, this morning in Luke chapter 11, we begin this account with a question from a disciple. Now, in Luke chapter 11, it doesn't tell us the name of this particular disciple. It is, as most people suppose, likely that this is not one of the twelve disciples, but it's rather one of the broad group of followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are many implications of the question that this disciple asks Jesus 
But I want to highlight one of those implications. The disciple asked Jesus to show them how to pray. By implication, it means that this particular disciple does not know how to pray. Or he finds it very hard, challenging, discouraging, or confusing knowing how to pray. Therefore, he asked Jesus to teach them to pray. After all, we don't ask for things that we already have. We ask for things that we lack. The disciple this morning asked Jesus to show them how to pray because he does not know how to pray. And I want to begin this morning by saying this is the case with all Christians for all time. That we largely struggle in our understanding with how we ought to pray. It is true for everyone who comes by faith to Christ Jesus. Reminds me of this story. Sinclair Ferguson, many of you know Sinclair Ferguson, he was approached one time by a publisher, and the publisher came to Sinclair Ferguson and he said, listen, Sinclair, we want you to write a book on prayer. Sinclair Ferguson thought about it for a while, and he came back to the publisher, and he said, I don't feel qualified to write this book. I believe I myself don't really know how to pray. And the publisher said to him, well, okay, that's great, but who would you recommend then to write this book? And Sinclair took a, 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 another chunk of time, and he thought about it. He came back to the publisher, and he said, I've got this great guy. I think he'd be perfect for writing this book on prayer. And the publisher kind of laughed out loud, he said. And then he told Sinclair Ferguson, well, we already spoke to him, and he said the same thing. He wasn't qualified to write a book on prayer. He himself didn't understand how to pray. And I think it illustrates the point that we as believers often struggle with how we ought to pray. Even when we comprehend the technicalities and the instructions on prayer, we struggle in our spirits. We struggle with our motivation. We struggle with how exactly we ought to pray. This morning as we look at this summary of the Lord's Prayer. I want to look at it through the lens of the various ways that we struggle in our own lives of prayer. In the ways that we struggle. So let me begin with this. The first way I think we often struggle in our prayer lives is that our prayer is too impersonal. Our prayer is too impersonal. And this manifests itself in so many different ways in our lives. Sometimes it's because we don't know God because we haven't studied Him in His Word. And so for us, prayer is kind of rote. It's very simplistic. We have one or two good ways of thinking about God and that's it. And we say it over and over again. And we find before too long, prayer has become boring to us. Sometimes though, as it was the case with Jesus, when He often spoke about prayer, He would speak about those, for instance the Pharisees, who prayed in an impersonal way because prayer had become to them all pomp and frill. It had become an outward expression to communicate to the people around them how great they were or how good they were acting. And so Jesus said, as He compared the Pharisee to the sinner, that is the sinner who prays and beats his breast and says, Lord, help me, I'm a sinner. 
who prays in the right way, not the Pharisee who says aloud, God, thank you that I'm not a sinner like this man. So we struggle with our prayer because it's often too impersonal. I think Jesus addresses this at the beginning of His prayer as He says to this disciple, when you pray, say, Father. And if you remember back to Matthew chapter 6, the first time when Jesus gives the fuller version of this Lord's prayer, He doesn't just say, say Father. He adds to it the personal pronoun, our Father. When you pray, say, our Father. Now listen, as Jesus begins this exhortation to prayer, uh, exhorting these disciples to begin by calling God Father, there's something significant to that. It's not the first time anybody's called God Father. It happened at least 14 times in the Old Testament. But every time in the Old Testament, the, the depiction of God as Father was that He was the Father of Israel. He's never spoken of as Father of an individual as a personal Father. This is one of the many ways that Jesus begins to drastically alter our understanding of who God is because Jesus says not only is God my Father, but He's your Father. And so when you pray, say, Our Father. Now listen, that communicates to us the very personal nature of the relationship that we have with our God because He is our Father. We're to come to Him as one who loves us, who we have a personal relationship with, who cares for us, wants to hear us, and will move on our behalf because we are His family. You remember a variety of passages in which the Apostle Paul speaks of this very thing in his letter to the Galatians. In his letter to the Romans, he says in chapter 8, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul will go on to exhort those Christians to act as children of God. He is our Father. And so our prayer ought to be personal. It reminds me of these, I've got these letters that I've got a uh, uh, taped above my desk in my office. They're letters that my children have given me throughout the years. Some of my favorite. And I've got one there from my son a few years ago, and it goes like this. It says, Dear Dad, I love you. I love playing Super Smash Brothers with you. I love being near to you. I especially like wrestling with you. Dad, I love you so much. I can't wait till you come home today. All right? That's what the letter says. It's very simple, but to me, it's an expression of a personal relationship that I have with my son. It says, I want to be near to you. I love you, and I love the time I spend with you. Ought that not be the way that we pray to our Father? Father, I want to be near to you. Father, I love the time I spend with you. Father, I can't wait to be close to you. And so Jesus exhorts His disciples, pray, saying, Our Father. The second way we often fail or we struggle in our prayer life is that our prayer becomes what I like to call wish list prayer. God becomes to us a better version maybe of Santa Claus. Okay, He's making a list. He's checking it twice. 
going to see who's naughty and nice. And for us, prayer becomes only the opportunity to ask God for the things we want. And when we don't sense our need, we don't pray. When we sense our need, we pray all the more. I would say you've probably witnessed this in your lives because if you're like me, often our prayer life begins to pick up when we sense our need, right? We become prayer warriors when we lose a job. We become prayer warriors when we get a blood test and there's something that's out of the normal. We think, well, we better get praying, okay? We become prayer warriors when someone in our family begins to really struggle. And you know, it's interesting. You, again, if you're like me, here's how that goes. You begin to commit yourself to prayer, and you probably think, okay, you know what? I'm not going to go right to asking for things. I'm going to do the other things. And I kind of do it to get to the point where I can ask for the things I want, right? And so I'll, I'll adore God, and I'll confess my sin, and I'll thank Him for things, but I'm really doing it just as a pretense to get to the point where I can ask Him for my great need, okay? I know you've experienced that. We all do that. We struggle with that. That's the, the wish list type of prayer. It's a particular, not a unique problem within the American church, but a, a particular bent of the American church to conceive of God as the one who gives us the things we want. So that's how we pray. To that, Jesus begins with this first petition. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. You see, the, the remedy for us, if, if we find that our prayers are completely selfish, if all we care about is what we get from God, the remedy for us is not to stop wanting things from God. It is to get a better focus or a better particular understanding of the righteousness and reverence of the Father. Jesus says when you begin your prayer, begin by asking the Lord God for His name to be hallowed. That is, for the name of God to be revered, for it to be honored, for it to be held up in righteousness. And so Jesus commands them, say, Father, hallowed be Your name, Your kingdom come. And I would suggest to you that we probably don't have a great view of the hallowing of the name of God. The hallowing of the name of God. For this is to be demonstrated not only in our prayer, but in our daily lives. That the name of God is to be revered. That it's to be lifted up. You know, I'm often surprised at how many Christians, without even knowing it, they break the third commandment as they use the Lord's name in vain. They, they, in their frustration, will say something like, oh, oh my God. And that's taking the Lord's name, which is to be revered, and it's bringing it to a level of, of when I'm frustrated, I take the Lord's name and I use it in passing without even recognizing the holiness of the name of God. The righteousness of the One who we pray to. And so Christ commands us when we pray, say, Our Father, hallowed be Your name not only through the word of our mouth, but through the intention of our heart, we ought to have a desire for the hallowing of the name of God in our lives, in our families, and in our churches. The third way that we often struggle in our prayer life is that we conceive of prayer as primarily a therapeutic exercise. Prayer is primarily a therapeutic exercise. During the pandemic, 
uh, CNN uh, put out an article, it was just a few months ago, and they were trying to help people cope with their struggles during the coronavirus. And the title of the article was, The Psychological Benefits of Prayer. And you know, if, if CNN's writing an article on prayer, it's probably not very great. Uh, but the conclusion of the article was, listen, uh, you know, prayer, we all know, uh, it's not, it doesn't change things in the cosmos. But what we do know is it really gives us an internal peace. It gives us a psychological well-being. It helps us to feel better about ourselves. It makes us to think about other people outside of us. And so the whole article was admonishing uh, worldly people to pray for the therapy of prayer. Okay? And I tell you this morning, as Christ exhorts His followers, He wants them to know that prayer is not a therapeutic exercise. Now I know as Christians, we don't approach prayer saying, I know this has no power, but I'm going to do it anyway. And yet, sometimes the way we live is as if our prayer has no power. That we, we, we get into an exercise of prayer. And so we pray before meals because, hey, that's the way we want our kids to, to be raised. It's, it's good that they see us praying, so let's pray. And we don't really believe it's doing anything, but we're going to do it for the sake of our family. Or we pray because that's what our parents did. Or we pray because we're in church and there's people looking at us, so we better be praying. That's the expectation. Okay? Jesus says to that, he admonishes this disciple, pray, give us each day our daily bread. And the admonishment from Christ is, as you pray, ask for the things that are pertinent to life because God hears and He answers your prayer. He provides for your needs. Jesus conceives of prayer as the exercise of powerless human beings who have no power or authority over the events of their lives. It is the exercise of powerless human beings speaking to the one who has power over all things. And so as we pray to him, we ask him for the things which we have in our lives that we need, knowing we have no power and authority over those things, but he has all power and authority over those things. And as a matter of fact, he moves to give us those good things. He cares for us and He works on our behalf. Now, as you pray, not only is give us our daily bread, not only is that a prayer for our daily sustenance, right, for the roof over our head, uh, for, for the provision of financial means, for the things that we need on a daily basis, our own health, but it also is at its most simple, a basic prayer, a prayer for daily bread for the food that we need. And as we were reflecting on this passage this past week, it was interesting to think, well, for us, if we pray, give us our daily bread, we're probably thinking, but I have my daily bread. I go to the grocery store and I, I get my daily bread, and you know what? I can get any kind of bread I want. I get white bread, wheat bread, Italian bread. I get special bread like pumpernickel or rye bread. I can get sweet bread, sour bread, crusty bread. My daily bread is in the grocery store. It's not something I need to pray for, right? But I would encourage you and exhort you, even with that, in the understanding that the bread that we get in the grocery store every week is the provision of God to provide for His people in such a way that it begins to feel like automatic to us, doesn't it? 
It begins to feel like something we don't need to pray. We can move past that. Because bread we have, so let's pray for the things that we, maybe we won't have. But even the bread you pick up at the grocery store each week is a provision of God. It reminds me of G.K. Chesterton. He wrote this one time, and it stands out to me as something that helps me frame my understanding for the things in my life that seem automatic but are also, the, everything in my life is a provision of God, right? So listen to what Chesterton said here. I think it's beautiful. It's a little poetic, so you have to kind of bear with me. Chesterton said this, all the towering materialism which dominates the modern mind rests ultimately upon one assumption. It's a false assumption. It is supposed that if a thing goes on repeating itself, that it is probably dead. It's a piece of clockwork. People feel that if the universe was personal, it would vary and change. If the sun were alive, that it would dance. This is a fallacy even in relation to known facts. The thing I mean can be seen in children when they find some game or joke that they specially enjoy. A child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not the absence of life. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. I think, as I think about my daily bread, that is also a reminder to me that my daily bread is not just an automatic piece of clockwork. It is part of the provision of God for me in my daily sustenance. And so we pray, Father, give us our daily bread. The fourth way that I think we struggle in our prayer is that we contend, some of us at least, tend to have an optimistic prayer life that's always optimistic in the way we pray. Now, if you know me, you know that's the way I pray, okay? You may have grown tired of the way I pray. If you come to community nights on Sunday night, I pray every Sunday night. Thank God for the beautiful weather, the sunshine, the breeze. Thank you, God, for giving us a space to meet for the people of our congregation, okay? It's always a focus on the wonderful provision of God, and that is good, don't get me wrong. But the next petition of the prayer that Jesus gives us is a petition that also helps us to center ourselves on our confession of sin and our tendency to be wooed by temptation. He says, and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. It's the part of the life of our prayer that sobers us with the reality that, that we are not God. And as a matter of fact, we are separated from God by our sin. It is a sin that condemns us to judgment 
if not for the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so we confess our sin as an act of worship. As, again, as we were reflecting on this passage this past week in staff meeting, uh, Jeremiah mentioned as we were talking, he said, you know, I find it interesting that as we pray this prayer and as we use this as a template for our prayer, it's always the confession of sin that people kind of avoid or they, they don't want to spend much time uh, praying about. Uh, to a T, that always seems to be my experience as well. I would tell you it, it happens in my home often. For years now, our family has been praying that template of acts, right? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. And so we've got four members of our family. And so oftentimes, we've probably done this a thousand times, we will say, okay, each of us is going to take a part of the prayer. Who wants, what part do you want to pray? And I can guarantee you a thousand out of a thousand times, no one has ever said, ooh, ooh, me, me, I want confession. I want to take the part where I confess my sin. We never do that. It's always the last one. And the last person says, oh, okay, I guess I'll, I'll do confession. If I have to, I'll do confession. I think Jesus' exhortation to confessing our sin, to praying that we not be tempted, is one that needs to be more and more robust in our lives. You see, a robust confession of sin is a testimony to a robust understanding of our own sin of the damage that it causes, of the effect that it has on our heart, of the separation that we experience. The more we confess our sin and the deeper our confession becomes and the more we sense the internal turmoil of sin and not only the action of sin but the propensity of sin, our inclination in our own hearts, the more we sense that everything we do is mixed and muddled with sin is a confession to God that we truly are beginning to understand the very nature of sin, which is deeper and greater and more damaging than any of us will ever conceive of in our lifetimes. And so he exhorts us to confessing our sin. It's a good lesson for me, as I said, being an optimistic prayer person, recognizing that there are sobering realities that must be present in our prayer. The fifth way I think we struggle in our life of prayer is the exact opposite. We can just be pessimistic in our prayer. We can always be, woe is me, okay? Now, you, if that's you, you, you know it. I'm sure you know it. If it's you, when I pray, I probably rub you the wrong way. That's what happens with uh, those who are pessimistic and those who are optimistic. The, the pessimists are always rubbed the wrong way by the optimists, and the optimists are saying, oh, come on, it's not that bad. What, what's the problem here, you know? Chin up. But the pessimistic prayer, the, that failure, that struggle, that tendency, we can always be praying, woe is me. And if you've ever prayed in a group, you're probably praying, woe is me. And, and the people around the table, they say, well, it sounds like everything in your life is so terrible. Can you tell us, what is it? And, and you might say, well, you know, uh, my life is just falling apart. There's nothing really, uh, but it's just everything is always so terrible. And they're saying, well, what is it? And you might say, well, I, there's nothing really. I'm just, I always feel, woe is me, like Job, okay? And you see, this prayer of Jesus, it also begins to challenge those among us who are more melancholy in our prayer, okay? The, the woe is me, always praying, woe is me, because the whole structure of this prayer is based or predicated upon the idea that we now have communion with God. 
which is a thing to be rejoiced over, is it not? Jesus can say to us, pray our Father, not because it's some nice thing that Jesus is saying, but because of the blood of Christ, we've been reconciled to God. Now we are sons and daughters, and He is truly our Father. And if we can't rejoice over that, there's nothing in this world that we can rejoice over. So I would encourage you, if you struggle in your prayers, not finding joy in God, to reflect on the whole understanding of our Father in heaven who hears our prayer. Finally, I believe the last way that Christians often struggle in their life of prayer is that it's just non-existent. Some of us struggle and we just don't pray. And I would suggest to you that there's a variety of reasons this is true, okay? Sometimes it's just like, it's not that important to me, therefore I don't pray. That's a problem. Sometimes it's because we've been injured. We've experienced trauma. We have had some major event in our life that has made us, so it's, it's hard in our lives for us to pray and we just stop praying. Sometimes it's because we've prayed and we've sensed that God's not hearing us, okay? To that, I believe Jesus gives this brief parable at the end. This is the, this is the foundation for why we can pray as Jesus commands us to pray. He says in verse 5, which of you has a friend? Now, I, I, I want to, I think that's better rendered in the New American Standard. So the New American Standard says this, suppose that you have a friend, okay? So it's a hypothetical. It is a parable. Suppose that you have a friend, you will go to him at midnight, and you say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him, and he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, my children are with me in bed, I cannot give up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, do you understand what Jesus is saying? It's a very simple story. You have a visitor who comes in from out of town. You say, great, I love visitors. And you open your pantry, and there's no food to feed the visitors. Okay, and so what you do is you say, we're going to go to the neighbors. We're going to get three loaves of bread. This is great, but it's late at night. And you go and you knock on your neighbor's door, and your neighbor says, go away. We're asleep already. Leave us alone. Stop bothering us, right? And what does Jesus say, okay? He's not going to give you the bread, but because of your impudence. What does that mean? It means persistence. It's a negative word that almost means antagonism. The picture is very simple. You remain at this person's door, and you're knocking and knocking. You're like, hey, I'm still here. I haven't gone away. Can you get up? We really need bread. I see you in there. The lights are on. I know you're home. We're never, we're not going anywhere. And then eventually the man comes to the door and says, okay, here's your three loaves of bread. Please let us just get back to sleep. You see the, the picture that Jesus is beginning to paint of our prayer? He's calling us to be persistent in our prayer. Not because God doesn't want to come to the door and give us what we need, but because God is waiting to hear from us and desires to move to meet our needs. And so he says, continue knocking on the door of God. God, here's my need. God, I want you to know my need. I know you're listening. Here's what we need. 
Here's what we're experiencing, God. We're going to say it a thousand times. We're going to be persistent in our prayer. And and then Jesus says in verse 9, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. That's kind of the explanation of that parable that he just shared. Ask, and you will receive. Knock, and the door will be opened. Seek, and you will find. When you seek, ask, and knock of the Father, He will provide for your needs. And Jesus continues on. I will tell you, this prayer is the how, how we ought to pray. But this last part here is the why, okay? Why we ought to pray. Not the cosmic why, not because it glorifies God, which is part of the why, but the practical why. Like if you were to say, Pastor, really, why should I pray? Why? Why really should I pray? Listen to what Jesus says. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, he will give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And I love the way that Matthew records the earlier Lord's Prayer. Matthew, earlier in chapter 6, he says this very thing. And then at the end, he says, How much more will the Heavenly Father give good things to those who ask Him? Time to be done. There's the alarm. How much more will your Father give good things to those who ask Him? You see the conclusion of Jesus? If you, and I know you do, if you know how to give good things to your children, well, of course God gives good things to His children. If you, who are evil, know how to give good things to your children, how much more will our Father in Heaven give us good things? You know, I have always found it interesting. We've been involved with foster care for a number of years. And throughout our experience with foster care, we've encountered many parents who are just not great parents. They don't take care of their children. But time and time again, through conversations with these parents, I find it interesting that though they do not care for their children, they know how to care for their children. They know that it's good for their children to get presents on their birthday. They know that it's good to feed and clothe their children to provide for their needs to protect them. They know it, they just don't do it for a variety of reasons. The question of Jesus is so pertinent. If you who are evil know how to give good things to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to you? The connection is very simple. We pray because God hears us. We pray because God hears and He answers and He gives us what is good. He responds. He meets our needs. He provides for us. Our Father gives us what we need. For He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us, how will He not also with Him graciously give us good things? See how beautiful that is? 
Our Father has demonstrated His love for us. He has given us the ultimate good in His Son. Now, as we consider praying, we ought to be encouraged to pray and to pray fervently and to pray consistently and to pray always without ceasing because our Father hears us and He gives us good things. I want to close this morning with us praying the Lord's Prayer. So let's bow our heads and let's pray together as our Lord and Savior taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.